My name is Gianni Russo, a.k.a. Carlo, the infamous son-in-law from The Godfather. I'm now known as the Hollywood Godfather, and this is my story. Before all of the wins in my portfolio, I was a little boy diagnosed with polio. Welcome, everybody. We're back with another episode of The Hollywood Godfather. And today's show, I'm telling you, you're going to be amazed at some of the facts you're going to get. We're going to clear up a lot of unknowns. And uh, our guests don't even know that I starred in a movie called Lepke, where I played Albert Anastasia and Tony Curtis played Louis Walter. So I know all about that. And my compadre, Pat Piccarelli, is here. Piccarelli. Hi, everybody. Hi there, Patrick. Do you want to uh, introduce our? I, I will. I will introduce the guest. Yeah, we are. We are quite fortunate. Uh, in fact, I I just uh, started his book uh, because we only just started talking uh, at the end of last week. But uh, our, our guest is Alan Geik, and he wrote a nonfiction book called "Uncle Charlie Killed Dutch Schultz." Now you probably don't know what it's about. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, you know, we, we we were just saying at the start of the show, that's like the, uh, the the nonfiction version of Snakes on a Plane. You know exactly what you're getting by reading the title. Mm-hmm. And this is a true story about uh, uh, our, our, our guest, Alan, and his uh, his family, his extended family, and Murder Incorporated. And that story extends to the NYPD and one of the biggest corruption scandals in NYPD history, which I am very acquainted with and we could go into that when we get to the uh to, to the point in the show but without further delay i present we present mr alan geik thank you so much patrick and johnny for having me on the show it's no it's our pleasure to be here. oh yeah so you know uh, this we, we have so many things to talk about give us give us your background I grew up in the Bronx. Uh, my father, when I was younger, worked as a, uh, a a shipping department of a music publishing company. So we were always into the American songbook, which has a part in the story also. But I wound up going to City College. My father was out of work at the time and wound up in London uh, at the London School of Economics, of all places. And I got a master's degree, but I said, I can't do this for the rest of my life. So I wound up in the film business. I just couldn't imagine what am I going to do now that I and I saved some money and my mother gave me six hundred dollars. That's all she had at the time. And I took a student. I wound up with three thousand dollars in London for a year and a half at the time. Imagine that. But I I wound up uh, in the film business working at Wide World of Sports, which was as I said every, at the time, every day was like D-Day invasion. You'd never know if you were going to leave that day or two days later because of some crazy show that they just shot. So it was great training for everything I did after that. And I moved out to L.A. and I uh, used some of the contacts that I mentioned in the book, all to no avail, to get, to get yeah. into the editor's union and uh, um Oh, Mickey Cohen was dead already. <laughs> was Mickey Cohen dead already? Yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> uh, actually, my mother wound up getting me a job at Paramount by talking to the mother of someone she met in Florida, who said, 
oh, my son is a vice president at Paramount. Have your son look him up. I said, I'm not looking up someone my mother tells me to look. And months later, I was needing a job. So I went to see him and he said, could you do this? Uh, 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 we're changing Technicolor to uh, uh, negative. We're getting rid of the technical. I said, well, sure. And the next thing I knew, I was there for 12 years. He said, I'll give you 30 days to get in the editor's union. And 12 years later, I was still there working on some fun films that they did throughout the 80s. But when did you start writing? Uh, I wrote uh, financial kind of stuff around the crash of 2008 uh, for some financial websites. Uh, uh, I was writing about what a a fraud it all was, how the banks really made out like bandits, which we could see 12 years later, they're, they're bigger and stronger than they ever were. But I was fascinated with radio because at the same time as I started at Paramount, I wound up just lucking into a job that I also thought would be just a few month job uh, as a radio host at a, at a small college station. And 25 years later, I was still doing the show. How uh, old are you so far? You gave us 100 years of employment. <laughs> <laughs> at that time, I was, I was 38 years old. And I did. I worked at Paramount and did the radio show, which I might say, in 25 years of doing being a host on the show, I made eighty dollars. What was the show? It was called uh, Latin Dimensions, and then on another station, Alma del Barrio, which is going to have its 50th anniversary this uh, June in uh, Los Angeles. And I just could. Uh, it was the most extraordinary experience being in people's homes. Uh, uh, I can't even describe. I, I thought I would do it for a couple of months, but it turned out to be such an adventure that um, I stayed and never left. And I wound up doing two CDs of Afro-Cuban music in uh, 2000. And to my shock, one of them got two Grammy nominations. And then I was at the Grammys, which I thought all these... Uh, Award shows were total frauds. I could never watch any of them, the Emmys, the Oscars, the Tonys. That was me. And there I was. Uh, uh, I thought I was getting some kind of an award, but it wasn't me. It was the musicians who, just like if I got an award as a film editor, the producer wouldn't walk up to uh, get the yeah. award to be the editor. And uh, so I wound up buying $2,000 worth of tickets for my sister who lives in Boston. She's an attorney. And she helped me greatly with the uh, licensing issues that came up and uh, a couple and, of other. And you did all that on $80 salary? How did no. you buy <laughs> <laughs> What do you think? You're talking to the feds or something? <laughs> <laughs> no, that, uh, and yes, that was still during the. Uh, oh, by the way, there was also someone came up with a seed with an LP. That's how long ago it was. And asked me to play uh, two songs on it, which I was going to do. I knew that he was a manager of an artist and he gave me $20. Wow. It was so, <laughs> I was so shocked. I gave it back to him and he looked so um, embarrassed. I said, no, no, uh, your your artist is like my brother. I can't take his money. And he that called him out. Uh, and so my joke was $80 and a $20 bribe I didn't take. There you go. There you go. And so how old were you when you first discovered your family's, how, how should I put this, colorful background? I, I probably was always aware of it because 
As I pointed out in the book, my father was pretty much of a civilian. His older brother was Uncle George, who became one of the uh, major players in uh, the Desert Inn and the Stardust and the Cleveland Mob. And when, uh, we always knew Uncle George was, uh, he had weight. When he came to New York, he'd stay at the Essex House or the Hampshire House. And uh, we lived in the Bronx in a two-bedroom apartment, five of us. And uh, so I was always aware that Uncle George and the people around him were criminals, but I didn't have a big picture of the whole thing. They were just family to us, really. Well, the starters, as you just pointed out, the starters was all Cleveland and Chicago. That's right. And it was Uncle George who... What was uh, his last name, Uncle George? Uh, Gordon. Gordon. You, George Gordon was your uncle? Yeah. When did he die? 1973, let's say, a year or so off of that. I met I him. You, you guess who I met him with? Oh. Gil, uh, Yale Cohen. Yale, oh my goodness, because Yale Cohen is a, a figure in our family. And uh, <laughs> Yale Cohen's daughter was, uh, my sister is trying to reach his daughter as we speak. Debbie? Sorry? De Debbie Cohen is in Vegas. But unfortunately, she has dementia. I stay very close to the family. Years ago, I, I, I didn't mention this story, but my sister did in an interview. Uh, she went out with my parents when the Stardust first opened. And uh, my Uncle George put a slot machine in her uh, room. I heard that. I heard that. I heard that on the uh, Now yeah. I know why it was there. Because I just, I swear to God, he'll detect it. <laughs> Pat will attest to it. I listened to the radio interview. I said, the only thing I don't believe is no way they're putting a slot machine in a teenage girl's bedroom and having a guard outside. Now that I know it's Uncle George, I know they did. <laughs> uh, yeah, to the, and my mother, as you probably heard in that, my mother was outraged because she never really wanted that stuff to uh, flow on to us. My sister became an attorney. My brother became a detective and then got into trouble and wound up running my father's trucking business. Uh, uh, but uh, we were always there and they were always there. And in some ways uh, uh, they appreciated us because me, for You're my legitimate story, people. You're legitimate people. Yeah. And they, ha and my life was of interest to them too. And I'm going to tell you something. You're not going to believe. I know where you had dinner every night. Two, two, two restaurants, Moby Dick or the Luau. <laughs> that was way before me. <laughs> oh, oh, you didn't go to Stardust? That was the big restaurant. I, I went to the Stardust. Uh, the first time I was in Las Vegas was in 1976. I was working on a sports show at uh, the Super Bowl of motocross in uh, the Coliseum in L.A., and my parents and my sister were at the Stardust so they said, just jump on a plane. I got the plane and I was there with my father alone. And we went to all the casinos because my uncle had just passed away and he uh -huh. knew all the casino operators. So it was a fascinating few days with my father. Probably uh -huh. the most time I ever spent with him uh, in my lifetime in one uh, uh, in one setting, so to speak. Your, your uncle was very well respected. And uh, another guy that you he knew who was his powerhouse was Nick Denothel out of Cleveland. Uh, he was uh, uh, the Peanuts. Peanuts. That's right. That was his nickname, Peanuts. Yes, Peanuts. I knew Peanuts. I, I only knew him because when I went with my father. You uh, believe this, Pat? 
This is where my mother took off for a vacation. My father and I. My father took me and we spoke with, he introduced me to Peanuts. And Peanuts had a great comment. He was talking about Howard Hughes, who had since left. He said, you know, we stole him blind. He left oh, yeah. us in charge of the casino. And wh- what did we care? They were Mormons, the F- retired FBI agents. <laughs> what did we care about them? Well, that was Bill Dana. That was Bill Dana and all those guys. They were all that. Well, you know what they did? The government gave him the money to buy the hotels. They gave him an aircraft contract to do it so they oh, can right. infiltrate the mob. And then they left the mob still running the casinos. Unbelievable. <laughs> you would think that these guys, especially Howard Hughes, was a uh, aviator. He ran big oh, businesses, yeah. would, would watch out for the uh, money uh, for the uh, money room more than anything. But he, uh, he, was, he was already very heavy on drugs. Yeah, like, that must have been the reason. I, I used to walk with him because he, he, really? he used to like to go downtown to see Newton, Amato, and Newton. He fell in love with, with Wayne Newton. Oh, he wow. made Wayne Newton a headliner when he bought the Sands Hotel. Is that how it happened? And I'm going to give you an FBI name you ain't going to believe, Walter Kane. He I made Walt, he made Walter Kane the entertainment director. He knew nothing about anything. <laughs> Somehow they thought the FBI agents were going to uh, put some fear of whatever into the uh, other people, and they just laughed at them. Oh, no, it was, it was hysterical for a while because I, that's the time in our book that Pat's talking about when I was taking a million, two or three million out a week on skim back to the Vatican for them through the count rooms. And they were all their rooms. At <laughs> <laughs> the gang of shoot straight, the FBI. I mean, I know it was so funny. Well, I, I, I was a cop for 20 years. I mean, we had uh, dealings with the FBI and, uh, for some strange reason, most of the people that they assigned to the uh, uh, New York office were from Omaha, Nebraska. These were farm children. You know, they didn't they, they were clueless. Uh, you know why they did that? They were uncorruptible. That's yeah. right. Well, they, they were uncorruptible. And very confused. <laughs> yeah. Give, give them uh, a corn on a cob and, and a ham hock and get them out of here. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was, those were the days when Jack Hoover said that, there, you know, there was no mafia. So what better people to put right in the center of, yeah. uh, of the mafia capital of the world and FBI agents who didn't know what they were doing. But anyway, uh, this, I mean, quite a colorful career. And the, uh, the connection you two guys have, you, can, you can't oh make this God, stuff man. up. But oh, no. it, gets even, it gets even better. Your family's connection, Alan, to uh, Murder Incorporated, which is basically a segue to the book. So tell us about that. Well, actually, the uh, Uncle Charlie Workman, I only met him when he got out of prison in 1964. He got released the day of my sister's birthday. And uh, we knew of him, but he was obviously gone for my whole life because he went to jail around the time I was uh, uh, born, uh, give or take a year. And so uh, I was fortunate enough to spend the next uh, 15 years around him. And uh uh, the incident of obviously killing Dutch Schultz was one of the, as it became, it was really one of the, just one of the many incidents in the book, but I couldn't resist the title. Yeah, uh, great title. <laughs> yeah. And the subtitle, uh, The Jewish Mob, A Family Affair, I just had to make it a little more expansive than still one more retelling of that famous uh, Mobland hit. But uh uh, Uncle Charlie was interesting, and a lot of those men, uh, and I know you both uh, grew up in uh, Little Italy, 
So yeah. you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, um, they didn't have social clubs, the Jewish guys. This isn't my view of it all. Yeah, they met and do browse in Midtown Manhattan in the Garment Center. You probably know these places yeah. uh, for tea and coffee and sit around and schmooze. And the Italian guys had social clubs that they could go to. And these men wanted camaraderie with a lot of people. And I showed up uh, 20 years old to 40 years old, and they enjoyed seeing me. And I would sit and ask them a lot of questions, never about what they did, but about what someone else did. <laughs> <laughs> and my brother was, a, as I mentioned, he was a detective. And they treated him probably with a little more um, camaraderie than me, because at that point, hey, you're a detective. Okay, so you're one of us. That was the end. Back then, that was absolutely true. Yeah. And uh, I, I grew up around um, a lot of uh, – uh, my father used to get tickets for Yankee Stadium, great box seats right near the Yankee dugout. My father and brother knew nothing about sports, any sport. But he had a friend who had a, a company called the A&D Steel Company, maybe 23rd and 9th Avenue. And I would go because Willie Danker, the uh, owner, would say, come over, Alan, I'll give you some tickets. And the back room would be filled with guys who I knew by that point were numbers guys and uh, loan sharks and upper level police management with their jackets off, with bottles of booze on the table. And you know the look. Like the look and stuffed envelopes in their jacket pockets. All that stuff. <laughs> yeah, we like to refer to that as the good old days. Yeah, and they all look later on. I recognize them as being characters in Sidney Lamette movies, like Prince of the City and Serpico and Q and A. Uh, all these guys who had like red faces and white hair, and they wore these like checkered sport jackets. And well, uh, that, that was that was the Irish mafia. That's exactly what it was. Irish-German guys who uh, uh, ran the police department, probably the fire department at the time as well. Oh, yeah. yeah so look, let's get to Uncle Charlie. Uh, Charlie Workman was uh, was known as the bug. Uh, no one seems to know where he got that nickname. Do you know? Uh, I'm, I can't really say. And I oh. don't know anybody who ever called him that. I wouldn't think so in front of no. his face. Anyway. Uh, yeah, that happened with a lot of those nicknames, which, uh, for instance, Bugsy, uh, Seagull, and there was a Bugsy Goldstein, both spelt with two different, uh, one with one G, one with two Gs. And I think my father at the time said, you don't think anybody calls them these names. These are just like newspaper inventions. Uh, and they don't know how it's spelt anyway. But I can't really say how Charlie got that nickname. And he was also called Handsome Charlie. Uh, I read, and uh, he was a handsome man even when I met him. And all of these guys seemed so old to me. When I was 20, they were in, uh, uh, he would have been uh, 55 years old. So, yeah. so he, he was he was in Murder Incorporated, which is another name that, that, that the press named these guys. Uh, how old were you when you realized who Uncle Charlie actually was? I understood that before he got out of prison. Because uh, we we knew of his existence, we knew we never knew if he would get out of jail or not. And uh, as I said in the book, his relationship to us was he knew my parents and my uncle George. They were very close. Sammy Cassup, Johnny Diaguati. They were all a tight, they were all really a, a tight group of people. 
And uh, when Charlie went to jail, uh, and I wrote that out in, uh, my father was one of the people who brought money to his family because he was a civilian. They didn't want criminals going to his family. They lived in Queens. So we always knew there was that connection. And when he got out of jail, my brother was on the fast track because of his connections and the police department. And he always was there to help. Charlie was a little paranoid. Maybe that's a strong word about being investigated and the parole. He was out on parole in New Jersey. I don't know how they worked it with New York State. But my brother said, if you have any parole problems, I got the people to take care of him at that time. So Charlie loved us. He always called me his nephew, called my brother his nephew. I always called him Uncle Charlie. I never called him anything else. And uh, uh, that was my personal interaction with him. Do you you know how he got involved in killing Dutch Schultz? I mean, that's a big job, a big name. Big contract. If you screw it up. (laughs) And And doing it in New Jersey besides. Yeah. Uh, how, how, do you have any idea how he was involved with that? Well, I, I, yeah, well, uh, he was one of the uh, primo hitmen in Murder Incorporated by 1935. He was like, uh, uh, yeah, he was considered one of the uh, top line hitmen. And the um, syndicate, uh, Meyer Lansky, Lucky Luciano, they decided to take him, uh, Dutch Schultz, out because he was so erratic in so many different ways. And he wanted to kill Thomas Dewey, who was a special invest, uh, special prosecutor that the governor brought in just to get Dutch Schultz. And Dutch Schultz wanted to kill him. And they couldn't have that because that would have been, quote unquote, very bad for business. Yeah. And uh, you don't go and kill policemen. You don't kill uh, prosecutors. And so they took him out. And uh, how, how they chose uh, Uncle Charlie, I can't say except in retrospect, he was one of the uh, uh, go-to guys that they would have picked. Him how and was uh, how, how was he caught? Uh, uh, soon after, he, he was very upset because uh, Mendy Weiss was his uh, accomplice on that. They uh, killed four people. And Uncle Charlie, as he was wont to do, supposedly went through Dutch Schultz's pockets. Oh, boy. Mendy wanted to leave with the driver, and they drove away, and they left him. And he was so pissed off, he walked all the way from New Jersey to Brooklyn. He he was 25 years old, filled with adrenaline, and he had, uh, I think, the number was always $8,000 in cash. Uh, As I point out in the book, anytime there were numbers mentioned, I always gave it a little bit of uh, space because numbers tend to change over time. For the better, yeah. you know what I'm. I mean, sure. Uh, but uh, he he went to uh, Lepke and he complained. He went to Florida and saw Lucky Luciano and he complained. And both of them said, "You did the job. What are you doing? Like, get out of here." You know. Uh, but he he was at a party of Murder Incorporated assassins, believe this or not. And I think it was on a New Year's Eve in which he told the story his his bad feeling towards being left behind. And uh, two of those guys, Abrellis, who you know took a, 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 a was uh, wound up on the sidewalk, and another uh, hitman named uh, Ali TikTok uh, Tannenbaum, both uh, betrayed him uh, in 1941, and he pled uh, no contest. But my brother had an interesting uh, comment because he was one of the 
detectives that was involved in wiretapping, illegal wiretaps in the 60s of not just mafia guys, but also of uh, 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 United Nations officials, because there were CIA operations going on, which I wrote about in the book. It wasn't as big a deal. I mean, uh, but he said he would have loved to have wiretapped <laughs> that party of maf- of murdering oh, yeah. assassins, telling their uh, their stories. Yeah, that was always a joke for us. You definitely want to be a fly on the wall at that. Fly point. on the wall, right? Exactly. Uh, so, why did he plead no contest? It was at the end of well, the trial, right? Well, at that time, one of the things that happened, and it always happened overnight, and I, um, uh, at the end of 1940 or 1939. There was a bungled hit in the Bronx, a a guy who Lepke wanted killed. um, His name was Irving. I can't remember his last name. But uh, one of the family uh, uh, crowd, um, Cuppy Migden, uh, was assigned to find this guy in a building in the Bronx. And he pointed out the wrong guy. Instead, they killed a business executive uh, named Irving Penn. His last words to a detective was, I never had a bad, uh, and I never had an enemy in my life. And everything changed. People were willing to accept uh, organized crime because they lived with, they enjoyed it for the whole um, prohibition that had ended a few years earlier. They made their bets, their numbers. Uh, oh, yeah, they, they never thought of it as a victim, uh, as uh these were victimless crimes to the public. And that changed overnight with that murder. And the next year in Brooklyn, uh, uh, the um, district attorney, new district attorney, his name was William O'Dwyer. And uh, wow. he he was a born in Ireland. He was a laborer. He was a policeman. He became the DA. And it was his, he was really out to get uh, the combination, as it was called. And they wound up getting someone to uh, flip, Abe Rellis. And he, uh, uh, the DA, played it so well, he put it out in the newspapers that everybody was flipping. So everybody was coming in to talk to make, for whatever reason. And Abe Rellis and uh, Tannenbaum were going to testify again. They told the story about a Dutch Schultz killing, and uh, they were going to testify at uh, uh, Charlie's uh, trial in New Jersey and Charlie, there were, there were, there was a um, death sentences that were carried out. They didn't have them for 20 and 30 years like they do now. They, uh, they, did. Were, given, they were given the electric chair to quite a few uh, murder incorporated hitmen. I mean, I I, every other week somebody was getting fried. Well, there, there was a scene, there was a scene, I did the movie Lepke with Tony Curtis and there was a scene in Lepke that we were all on death row, Albert, everybody, which that never happened, but they made it for the movie. And he was doing the last walk. They shaved his head already. The rabbi's walking behind him. They're praying. They put him in the electric chair and fried him. They didn't, you know, you got uh, convicted on a Wednesday. <laughs> and it, it seemed like the following week. You know, now, now, you, yep. you know, now you wait 20 years to get uh uh, to get a death sentence. But well, that's all the think, civil rights stuff now. Then well, you know, you have a process of appeals and a lot of court right. cases and court law and all that. But back then, it was it was pretty swift, swift yeah. justice. Uh, Abe Rellis, 
who uh, was going to talk was in the, the Half Moon Hotel in Coney Island, which was still uh, still under up. gods, under the gods, was, federal gods. Still yeah. about the, about uh, ten years ago, somebody wanted to uh, to make it a historic structure, believe it or not. But they the may may kill that idea. But he was killed by New York City. <laughs> oh, that, that, yeah, that's a great. Uh, Adverb, they kill that idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he was, you know, it, it isn't a, it isn't a real secret that uh, uh, he was uh, tossed out that window right. by New York City detectives. Correct. And it was said he was a canary that couldn't fly. Yeah. Uh, it's funny because when I was much younger, we would sometimes go to Coney Island. And I remember once walking on the boardwalk with some of my family and one of them pointed up and the structure is still there, I believe, and pointed up and said, oh, that's where A.B. Rellis was thrown out the window. I was nine years old. I said, what? Thrown out the window? Well, you know, <laughs> uh, and they said it's so matter-of-factly. Uh, um, you know, they uh, they wanted to make it look like you tried to escape. I think it was on the 14th floor. They hung out a bed sheet that went down <laughs> one story. You know, I mean, what's he going to hang on the end and jump? That was you know? ridiculous. Very yeah. poorly planned, but that was that was uh, quieted down almost immediately. But after Relish went out the window, a lot of those cases collapsed, uh, but some of them didn't. And one of, a picture I have in the book, which I've seen many times over the years, uh, explain uh, 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 describes what you're just talking about, how different times were then. It's a picture of Mendy Weiss, who was Uncle Charlie's... Uh, um, partner on the Schutz killing, along with Louis Capone, no relation to Al Capone, another murder incorporated guy. They were convicted, along with Lepke, of killing a uh, uh, a candy store owner. In yeah, Brooklyn. it was Rose. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and uh, there they are on the train. They had just been sentenced to death in one month. They're on the train with their overcoats. Uh, and there's no there's no cops in sight. They have no handcuffs on. There's no orange jumpsuits. No, uh, uh, and they have uh, the New York Times folded over their lap, and they're smiling at the camera. And, and the next month they were dead. Sorry. In the following month they were dead. No, but actually they had to. It wound up. They, it took them 26 months or so because okay. Lepke had some. Uh, uh, legal challenges, but all three got uh, executed on the same night, let's say 1943, 1944. But the what? picture really stood out at me. These guys, uh, and they know they're going to go through with it because they have already executed people and they were fine. They're reading the New York Times. <laughs> well, the on, on, on that happy note, let's go to a commercial. And when we come back, We'll uh, talk a little bit about your brother. And I'm a little bit uh, more familiar with that story because right. I was on the job then. But, uh, Johnny, why don't you take us to a commercial? All right. Please, we'll be right back. We're going to make some money. And you know we know where you live, and we're going to come and find you if you're not back in your chair when we turn this back on. Today's show is being sponsored by Cordelione Fine Italian Food Products. This sponsor really means a lot to me. Cordelione Fine Italian has taken the heart and soul of the Godfather films and created a line of food products that include pasta sauce, balsamic vinegar from Modena, Italy, Genco extra virgin olive oil from Sicily. They created delicious pasta sauces, marinade, tomato basil, arrabbiato, and my favorite, Clemenza's meat sauce. You will be amazed 
You will think your grandmother made the sauce herself. CorleoneBuyingItalian.com That's CorleoneBuyingItalian.com All right, we're back. <laughs> okay. Uh, we're having a phenomenal interview with uh, with Alan Geick. I mean, this is uh, fantastic. Uh, interesting. It's, it's, it's odd now that so many years passed and these horrific crimes. Murder Incorporated... They, they, they were hired guns, basically. Uh, Jewish guys who hung around a candy store, and they, they were just stone-cold killers. Everybody had a specialty. There was a strangler. There was a stabber. There was a shooter. Ice uh, picks. But, we, you know, we can we can talk about it now and, and, and crack jokes, but these people killed thousands of people, literally thousands of people over the years. Yeah. And that's something else. But anyway, uh, Alan, you, uh, you made reference to your brother, Bernard. Uh, Tell us how he wound up being a cop and how he got jammed up. Well, uh, in some ways, uh, my my brother was older than me, and I think he was really, of the three of us, he was the one who was most captivated by the crime world, by Uncle George, who was my father. My father was Uncle George's younger brother, and he idolized his older brother. And my brother did as well. But my brother didn't really have what it took to be one of those people. That's my view. Instead, he wound up becoming a cop. And my Uncle George had some very uh, close connections in the police department at the time. And my brother wound up on something called the Tactical Patrol Force. Which I started. Did you? Oh, I think yeah, you had... TPF was uh, an elite group, and they were uh, they were put together. You were supposed to be over six feet tall or over. That's now, I'm right. 5'10", and when I got out of the academy in 1968, I wanted to go into that unit so badly because back then, the NYPD was corrupt. I mean, it was, there was systemic corruption. I wanted no part of that. I had just gotten out of Vietnam and survived. I didn't want to get tossed in jail. So I said, I- I'm going to volunteer for, for TPF, and it was a, there was a process to get in. And one of the things was height. And I was 5'10". I was two inches short. I got interviewed and I actually lied about my height. <laughs> I mean, they can look right at me. But they told- <laughs> and that, that unit was, was created specifically of uncorruptible cops because that was the, the, uh, the uh, nature of the job. That it would, uncorruptibles were difficult to find. TPF was created in 1960. So that's about when you're 1959. That's when your brother came on then. I believe he came on about 62. Okay. Yeah. Uh, again, give or take a year, and he became a detective uh, because he had so many close connections through my uncle George uh, with higher. They 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 were his rabbis, as they would say at the time. The yeah. guys who would watch you and uh, uh, help you move up the ladder. And he that became system is still in place, by the way. Oh, I'm sure it'll always be in place <laughs> everywhere. It was in Paramount <laughs> Pictures too. It never ends. <laughs> And uh, and he uh, became a, d- a detective and he wound up uh, uh, in narcotics and a couple of other places. And then one of his uh, rabbis, I believe, got him into the uh, special investigations unit, which yeah, was. SIU. Up, sorry. Yeah, SIU. Yes, the SIU, uh, which came about because of the French Connection uh, uh, movie. Uh, two of the New York detectives, uh, Eddie Egan and. Sonny Grasso uh, uh, busted a big case that involves uh, French connection and heroin. They became rock stars in the police department. 
and this is the story I understand, and I'm sure there's other threads to it, but the uh, police department said, why don't we put together an elite unit of detectives and they can go after the big uh, heroin dealers? Well, my brother was put on that. I can't say right away, but he was, uh, he was on it. And almost immediately, it became the most corrupt unit, uh, unit in the most corrupt police department. Uh, well, you know why? Total, they, they, money, had no money. they had no supervision. Yeah. You went out there and you did your own thing. Now, they, they, there were sergeants, there was a lieutenant and all that, but they didn't care what you did. Just went out and did your thing, just as long as they got their piece. Right. So I knew a couple of cops in there. Uh, I knew Bob Lucci. Who uh, he was the uh, centerpiece of the uh, Prince of the City film. They changed his name for the movie. Uh, Frank King and a few others. There was, a, I think, there was at least one suicide in that unit when it all started to crumble. But they were truly—they called themselves a, a princes of the city because they did whatever the hell they wanted to do, and they get rich doing it. That—that's—that's that, uh, that's right. And actually, the the, the uh, detective who committed suicide, his name was on the. Uh, uh, when you go take uh, evidence out of the locker, he wound up taking out uh, hundreds of pounds of heroin. All the heroin from the French Connection, all the heroin that was picked up over the years, it it's turned fun. out it was all flour in yeah. 1972. There were several hundred pounds of flour that wound up back on the street. And the detective whose name was on the uh, receipt, I can't remember his name, he committed right. some. Well, th they didn't know about that for years, but back then, even when I was a cop, you, if you wanted to pick up evidence, of course, you had to take it to court. There was a trial. You had to present the evidence. All this heroin had to be, uh, in the French Connection case, had to be ferried back and forth to court. So one day, some, some guy comes in there with a shield. Uh, back then, I don't know if we had ID cards back then. You had a shield. Uh, you just, I'm on the job. I'm going to sign out 14 pounds of heroin or whatever it is. They let him sign it out. No one knew who this guy was. He just signed it out, and he replaced it with, as you say, flour. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and it, it, it all wound up back on the street. Yeah, totally. Un the case was unsolved, but this was SIU. They were cowboys. They were, and my brother was one of them. And the interesting, well, uh, sad and interesting, his view about Lucy, which he expressed very early on, was that he was as bad as the rest of them. And he, as his proof in the book, Prince of the City, the first bad cop that Lucy mentions is my brother Bernard. Uh -huh. uh, he's, he's talking to these prosecutors who say, how do we know you can deliver? And Lucy's attitude was, well, I can't give up cops. I, I want to go after the judges and the prosecutors, which uh, later on, my brother's partner said that was total BS because uh, every cop knows that you give up everybody once you start talking. There's no like stopping. Yeah. But uh, Lucy says to the prosecutors, I can make one call and tell you where every wiretap is in the city. And he calls Bernard Geick, my brother, who says, yeah, I'll meet you. I'll give you the list. And uh, my brother had been doing wiretapping, too. That's why I don't think he was in the SIU at the time, because I don't remember all these details. But. Uh, he mentioned uh, Bernard throughout the book, but he was the first bad cop. And that, to show you how long ago this was, when they they didn't use his name in the movie either. Yeah. But I said, how do you feel about the movie? And he said, well, I hope Kirk Douglas plays my role. 
<laughs> he has a sense of humor. But these guys, uh, uh, most of them did not talk. I mean, one guy killed himself, as we just discussed. Frank King went to prison. I was talking to Johnny about this before the episode started today. Uh, he gets out and he decides he's going to become a private investigator. And I'm thinking, how the hell is this going to, is this guy going to get a PI license, convicted of numerous felonies? And I mean, I was a PI in, uh, in uh, New York. There's a lot of hoops you have to jump through. But there was a loophole in the law. If you worked for attorneys, you didn't need a license. And he specialized in working for attorneys. And he was a good PI. Everybody, he was very much in demand. He specifically worked for lawyers. And that's how he got away with that. Bob Lucy, believe it or not, became a, uh, an instructor in the police academy. But I, I was an instructor there for two years. He became an instructor. He was teaching about corruption. <laughs> I mean, what better guy? You know? but, he, but he started to paint himself as, as an angel after a while. He didn't do any of this. And he was, uh, he, he, you know, he didn't say he was uh, Lily White, but he had, had nothing to do with heroin. And he sort of made himself uh, look a lot better than he was. But he was uh, reviled, as every rat is, in, the, uh, in anywhere. But particularly if, you, if, if you're a cop and, and you testify against your, your fellow cops. And he passed away not too long ago, about four or five years ago. Heart attack, but the hell of a story. And SIU got immediately disbanded. And uh, that basically, that unit uh, changed the structure of investigative units throughout the NYPD. You had to have a certain uh, number of sergeants per cops or, or per detectives. Uh, everybody, uh, the, the, the paperwork was astronomical. Everybody had to follow rules. Of course, that didn't work for very long. Then came the NAP Commission. And we all know what happened then if you lived in New York. Uh, they were running uh, uh, criminal organizations. The whole, uh, they were called, instead of vice, they were called plainclothes units. The whole third division was corrupt, the entire division. I mean, it's, it's, back then it was amazing. How to, you know, but, you know, to try to avoid it, you, you had to go into units like TPF, who were, we were, you know, squeaky clean. I, I, I stayed in there till all the, all the dust settled, and then I got out. And, you know, went up the ladder. I became a sergeant, lieutenant, et cetera. The job was, you know, you can't make this stuff up. Some of the stuff these guys yeah. do. My, my, I wrote, uh, my brother always had a joke. He said to be in the special investigations unit, you had to have four qualities. You had to cheat on your wife. You had to be a dead drunk, which my brother, sadly, probably one of the causes of his death, uh, and my father's too. Uh, and uh, you had to be able to shake down drug dealers, and you had to take bribes. That was his joke. <laughs> if you didn't do those, you were a, um, uh, uh, you were a threat to the others, because then they didn't think you were one of them. I mean, yeah. it was probably an overstatement, but he la we laughed about it at the time. So uh, your brother was arrested and convicted, or what happened? He, uh, as you mentioned, a lot of the people were, uh, I can't say a lot, I think uh, 50, let's say, of the 75 special investigations uh, detectives were arrested. Uh, they said to him, give us somebody and we won't, we'll arrest you quietly. But he said, I have nobody to give you. So they gave him a perp walk in 1974. Uh, arresting him. And the charges got uh, down to a misdemeanor of 
and I, I'm not sure of this at the moment, of a, a bribe taking place. And he, um, he wound up doing no time. He gave up nobody, which was good to him because he wound up working for my father in my father's garment center trucking company, which to be there, you needed to have those kinds of connections, which I wrote about in the book. Uh, 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 he had very solid uh, connections. Had good relationship with Tommy Gambino then. <laughs> Tommy and, and Robert Gambino had the store right next to my father's. Now, I got into a dis difficulty with some people in Facebook or somewhere when I mentioned that. They said, no, his company was on 35th Street. It was called Consolidated Carries. I said, I can't say any of that stuff. I knew them from my next door to my father. They were very uh, fond of my father. They were younger than my father. They both looked like business executives. Uh, yeah. One of them went to uh, a college up in Riverdale, and he walked around with a, an attache case. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, I met them many times. They wouldn't remember my name. They might remember me by sight, but they were very close to my brother and my father. But I, I may I just tell a, a, a funny incident? My father um, looked outside the window of, new, of the trucking company, and it was like a film crew. And someone was waving him outside. So he went outside, and there was a young woman. She said, do you own this company? He says, yeah, uh, I do. said, um, uh, well, we're interviewing people about um, mob corruption in the garment center. And, <laughs> uh, and, uh, um, and my father said, yes. And he, she said, well, we know the Gambinos own the company right next door to you. And my father said, stop. Where are you from? And she said, Minnesota. <laughs> She's been in New York for like two or three weeks or months, whatever. And my father said, you know, those boys next door, I've known them for years. We really respect each other. And if I had something, do you think I would go on camera and talk to you about it? And yeah. that was a joke amongst uh, all the people in the Garmin Center bars yeah. for some time after. Yeah, who's going to say anything? Yeah. Well, wow. Tom, Tommy lives next door to me on, on, on 62nd Street, back to back. Wow. I see him all the time, yeah. He looks just like a smaller now. It's amazing. And my father told me one time, he was standing outside talking to them, or one of them, and a car pulls up, and it's Carlo Gambino. And he gets out to go into the thing. And my father didn't know him, but he knew a lot of, the, as I mentioned in the book, and uh, Tommy said, oh, here's my father. I'll see you later, Lou. And he goes in, and dad follows him. He looks my father in the face does a double take, walks up and pats him hard on his cheek. And he said, I hear you're doing a good job, Sonny. Keep it up. And he went into the uh, to see uh, his, his son. My father always loved that story. Wow. So tell us uh, what you're doing now. What's uh, in your future? Um, I, I, there's a movie I'd love to get off the ground that I probably can't. Uh, uh, it's a uh, book written uh, in 1815, a very surreal movie. Uh, but I'm also interested in writing about um, counterfeiters. Why? Uh, not the, I, I, I can't. As a one-time budding economist, I oh. understood about um, how all these civilizations, Rome included, fell down because of inflation, because of money print, of chipping little pieces off gold coins. Of And the idea of all these people doing it throughout the ages, I, I thought there was a story there and I didn't find one. 
And uh, um, I also do things like uh, trade options. Oh, uh, not not in a big, not in a. Uh, uh, actually, uh, I did it till one o'clock. But I don't do. I don't sit at my computer. I just make one or two trades a day. But it's sort of my way of being. Uh, I was never a gambler. Uh, but you want now options. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but actually, there's uh, some sensible ways to play it. But uh, we'll see how. Uh, I've been doing it for a while with some success, but not not great. I couldn't make a living off of that because it would take too much uh, uh, capital to do. My uh, oldest son, Kolodjeril, does that. Does he? He took he took a uh, Bobby Goldman uh, released him along with um, a name you know, Mike Bloomberg, in the eighties, <laughs> and. Uh, my son went to Italy and lives on a farm a family owns 600 hectares in, um, well, I don't want to tell you where he lives because he'll go rob him. But the thing is, he lives with my aunt, who's 107. He went there single. He married a girl that's not a 10 or 12, that she would have never married him if he didn't be making the money. But all he does is trade the Nico, trades three markets a day. Yeah, yeah, I know, guys. He's just, I mean, he looks like a zombie. He lost all his hair already. <laughs> and this girl had two kids right away with him. And I'm saying, I know this woman, what she's doing. But, you know, it's that's a dedication. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Doing, doing, I mean, you have no life. It's sort of like uh, people who might be drawn to handicapping horses and going to the track at six in the morning, that yeah. kind of uh, uh, commitment or craziness, however you look at it. I don't have that. I I just go in, dip into it every day for a little bit. Well, listen, as long as you're making a few shingles, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, that's a, few, a few shekels come out of it, but not a, not a, a tremendous amount. Uh, but uh, beautiful, book, beautiful book signings, Alan. Yeah, I do. And actually, the Mob Museum is going to have me in June here in Las Vegas. And that's a big deal for me. Because I was there twice already. And uh, Jeff Shoemaker told me that yeah. when I mentioned yeah. I was doing this with you. I told uh, him a funny story. I never told you this, Pat. Right. I did our book signing there three or four years ago. And the Mob Museum, for the audiences that don't know it, is the old federal building downtown. And Oscar Goodman, the mayor, got the federal government to give it to the city, and he made the Mob Museum in a federal courthouse. So That's now, so I, I I lived there for 30 years before I left. I left in 89 when I had that incident at my club. And so I just, you know, this is it. I'm out of here. 30 years anyway. So now they, they call me to do my our book signing there. And the place was packed. I'm talking about the good, the bad, the ugly, the rich, the poor. A hundred years of good behavior mobs. The whole place is packed. Now I got to come out. And I knew the, the main room was the main court. That's right. And, and where the bench is, is the stage, Pat. Yeah. So I'm going to come out where the judge comes out. <laughs> Were you wearing robes? No, but you won't believe what I did. So I come out, and everybody gave me a standing ovation and all that. And I looked at everybody. I said, do you know how many years they've been trying to get me in this building? <laughs> <laughs> that was my opening start of the story. <laughs> uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. 
It's a great place to visit. Uh, and I, I was thrilled when uh, they sent me all the paperwork and gave me a date in June. They only do a few a year. And yeah. I, I've done some book signings uh, to answer your question, Patrick. I did a few here and we'll do some in Las Vegas, uh, which are always fun because people have such a this. The, the one thing about writing the book in the aftermath was I never expected there to be hundreds of thousands of people on Facebook. I mean, one group on Facebook has 70,000 members to it. Uh, called the Mob Era. There's other ones, the Mob Summit, Las Vegas Mafia History, La Cosha Nostra. And <laughs> yeah, that's one of the groups. I like that. I went there but first. Pat, we should look into these talking. people. Sorry? Yeah, we will. Would you get those names for Pat? No. I, I, we, I, we, we want to expand our listening. They would love our show. Well, they well, definitely For sure. Why don't, yeah, there's like, I become a member of so many of them. And if I put up a small piece of the book, like a small segment of a uh, of a chapter, I get so many questions uh, about it. And I was lucky because some of the crime writers wrote to me and I sent them uh, what would have been pre-release PDF copies. And they gave me great reviews. I never asked them. I never knew them. But they, I said, wow, I never expected this. So uh, I never expected the audience for what I was writing about to be existing 70 years, uh, I'm sorry, 50 years later. Oh, social media is a wonderful thing. Oh my God, yeah. Thank I God. mean, uh, anyway, Alex, thank you so much for a very enlightening show. I yeah, mean, please. Even hours just gone by. Thank uh, you so much for having me, both of you. It's really... You know, been- if, if you wind up with any uh, future dates where you're signing, let me know and we'll, uh, we'll announce it to our listeners. We've got quite a few. Yeah, especially in Mob Museum. I yeah. definitely let you guys know about it. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. And uh, all I could say is keep up your great show. I've watched some of the episodes. Uh, okay. And uh, and give my best at Mob Museum. They just had me down there again, you know, this year. Because the a Latin Chamber of Commerce honored me this year at the Golden Nugget at a luncheon. Because in my early years, when I had Johnny Russo wig worlds and the jewelry stores, and I, I didn't realize how many people I employed. So the, the, the Latin Chamber of Commerce this year, and I was so impressed because the mayor, Oscar Goodman, and his wife came to the luncheon. And then I got an invitation to go to the Mob Museum that night, and I hung there for like three or four hours and did a Q&A for them. Wow. That was just recently. That's so cool. Uh, no, they asked me to cool. do the Q&A that night, too. So it's, I'm it's looking. Fun. Oh, yeah. you look. They saw a lot of books. Our book is prominently displayed there yet. The Hollywood it's, Godfrey. It's been four years. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah. thank yeah. you. All right. Well, thank you. Like Pat said, very interesting conversation. And keep up the good work and stay in touch with us. I'm sure we'll help will. each thank other. You both. We'll help each other. Yeah, I'll have a good night. Thank you again. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. It's time to say goodbye. Another great show. Keep all the emails coming. We get great information from your people. We get leads to shows that you want. We have two upcoming shows that definitely is all about our book, the new book, The Sixth Family. And we're creating a show based on what you're asking us about the book. Am I right? Absolutely. Yeah, probably. uh, We'll probably record it next week. Uh, we announced a few weeks ago uh, asking you folks to ask us questions about the book without giving any uh, anything away, of course. But uh, 
there, there are questions regarding truth and fiction and what, whatever you want to ask. We already got quite a few of them. And uh, while we're not, we probably won't be able to answer all of them. We'll answer a lot of them. So that's going to be uh, recorded next week and you'll see it before the uh, March is over. All right. Great. Well, thank you all. God bless. Stay safe. You too. And, um, don't do what I do. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to the Hollywood Godfather podcast. You can contact Gianni Russo or Patrick Picciarelli with your questions and comments through the contact section of our website, hollywoodgodfatherpodcast.com, which is where you can also subscribe to our You can also call and leave us a message at 646-776-3038. Remember to follow us on Instagram at Hollywood Godfather and on Facebook, as well as leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd like to know what you'd like about what you'd like to hear in the future, and anything else you might suggest to improve our podcast. Most importantly, hit the subscribe button. We'll be back next week with stories of the mob and Hollywood, as well as answers to your messages. Good night. My kids still can't believe I sat with a saint. My life's like scenes out of a movie. I'm the Hollywood Godfather, truly. I got stories with them all. You know, celebrities, world leaders, icons. Who knows what's next for me? I'll never get too old to have a little fun. Come on, I'm Gianni Russo. A genuine one of a kind. What a ride it's been, this life of mine. And I ain't done yet. I'll be back until next time. And that was that.